We are here. Oh my goodness. This is such a dream realized. Thank you so much for joining me for episode one of I'd Rather Be Reading. We're here. I am Rachel Birchfield and I am your host on this journey. So for more about what I'd rather be reading will entail, I encourage you to take a quick listen to episode zero, but in short summary, Mondays, we will interview authors of some of my favorite books I've read lately. And on Thursdays, I'll be back to share two current books I have really enjoyed reading and one book from years past that if you haven't already, you absolutely must check out. So I figured before we hopped into our first interview, it would be prudent for me to introduce myself to you because we are now friends, right? I am a writer, an editor, and a podcaster. I'm going to insert snippets of myself throughout our interviews and throughout really all of the time we spend together, but I am based in Birmingham, Alabama by way of Topeka, Kansas, where I was raised by a mother who herself loved to read and loves to read still, and said if she could raise me to love Jesus and love books, she would know she had done a good job. Well, I love both, Mom, and I love you. I have been a voracious reader my entire life. After learning to read by watching Wheel of Fortune every night with my grandparents, words have always fascinated me and I grew up to get a journalism degree and become a writer. And I've written everywhere from Vogue to Vanity Fair, Elle, Glamour, Cosmopolitan, Allure, InStyle, Mary Claire, Harper's Bazaar, People, and more. And sometimes I'm telling you when I say that, I still can't believe that is my life. I'm also the editor of What Megan Wore, which is a site that examines the work and wardrobe of the Duchess of Sussex. And this is actually my second podcast. I co-host a podcast about the British royal family with my dear friend Jessica called Podcast Royal, which of course I'd love for you to listen to as well. This is my first solo podcast. So you all out there are my co-hosts and my friends in this community and on this journey. So especially during the pandemic when I couldn't travel anywhere but my backyard, books became a route for me to travel anywhere I wanted to and meet whomever I felt like meeting. It was during this time that I realized how much books have been a gift to me throughout my life. And my intention for this show is to help you find books that will allow you to find a passion in reading, just as I have. If I had a one-sentence biography, mine would literally say, I'd rather be reading. Because truly, I would rather be reading than just about anything. So let me set the expectation. This show will probably never be perfect, and it certainly won't be perfect right off the bat. But we will grow as a community of readers together, and I encourage you to reach out to me and tell me what you'd like to hear on the show. I'll tell you how to do that at the end of the show today. So without further ado, I'd like to take you now to a wonderful conversation I had recently with Lisa Napoli, author of one of the best books I've read lately, Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, The Extraordinary Story of the Founding Mothers of NPR. Take a listen. I am so thrilled to welcome our guest to the show, the incredibly talented Lisa Napoli, author of Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki, The Extraordinary Story of the Founding Mothers of NPR. Lisa, like the four women she writes about in this book, has had a long, successful career in journalism, 
with her work spanning across print, radio, TV, online. She has worked for outlets you may have heard of, like the New York Times, MSNBC, and this is actually her fourth book. Her previous three works include Radio Shangri-La, Ray and Joan, and Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and The Birth of 24-Hour News. Born and raised in Brooklyn, but now a resident of Los Angeles since 2004. It is an honor to have you here, Lisa. Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki is quite honestly one of the best books I've read this year. And as a woman in journalism like yourself, it feels very very personal. So welcome to the show. Wow. Thank you so much for that introduction and for having me. You have no idea when you write a book, you have no idea what's going to happen with it. And it's so exciting to know that you loved it. I'm I'm thrilled. Thank you. I loved it. And I told you offline before we started recording that this is uh, just about one of the best books of 2021 for me. I, I treasure this book and listeners, please get a copy. It is out now and ready to read. So this is your fourth book, Lisa. What sparked the idea to write about these four women, the emergence of public radio with NPR and the second wave of feminism in the 1970s? Why is this story important to tell and now specifically? Well, you know, my last book, my third book was about Ted Turner and the making of CNN, where I began my career as a teenage intern in 1981, uh, I was growing up in Brooklyn, New York, and stumbled upon this strange new place called CNN. And decades later, after this crazy, varied career that I had, it was turning 40. CNN was turning 40 in 2020. And you know, it occurred to me a few years before that, with the help of a friend from that era, uh, saying to me, nudging me along, you know, no one's ever written the origin story of CNN. And I didn't realize, even though I was there at the very beginning and when I got out of college in 1984, that's where I went to work, I didn't know the backstory of the place. So it was a thrill to write it because it's a really surprising backstory that whatever you think about cable news today, and there's a lot to say about it, I think anybody who's interested in media and how it's changed the world really should know that story. So after I finished that book, my editor at uh, Abrams, who is about the same age as CNN, meaning younger than me, said to me, uh, Koki Roberts had just died. And he asked if I wanted to write a biography of her. And I said, well, yes, she's super, super, super interesting. And obviously she had this amazing career, but having worked in and around public radio for so long, I knew that uh, Koki was part of this quartet of women known as the founding mothers. And it turned out that that NPR was turning 50 this year. So another good peg milestone mm-hmm. like the CNN one. So that's what prompted the book. And you know what I loved about this story, Rachel, is like any story, the minute you dig a little bit deeper into something, you find out mind-blowing stuff that just somehow never gets discussed. And we'll talk, I'm sure, much more about that. But every, every bit about these four women surprised me because I just didn't know anything about their history. I just thought about this. So I've read almost every Koki Roberts book. She's, mm-hmm. she's a best-selling author as, as well as just being a, an amazing journalist, founding mother yes. of NPR. And she wrote a book about 
founding mothers of this country. Yes. And she's yes. a founding mother herself. I just, I just, I just put that full circle loop together. Good. So, that's what I was hoping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's brilliant. So, so even before the book begins, there is an epigraph, a quote from an unnamed NBC network radio executive speaking in 1964, which says, quote, many women may be fine in everyday conversation, but put them in front of a microphone and a camera as well, and something happens to them. They become affected, overdramatic, high-pitched. Some turn sexy and sultry. Others get patronizing and pseudo-charming. Not that they all put on an act, but with a man, you seldom have this problem, end quote. Of course, this (laughs) experience me um 1964 was not that long ago so this is the landscape into which these four women you write about in the book are starting their careers so set the scene more for us about the environment in which they find themselves in the mid-1960s in journalism well that that pretty much sums it up uh women were were basically you know underclass uh it was you know and the interesting thing about these four women is that they were educated nina didn't finish college but that we'll talk about too uh but they were from a, a certain class uh that allowed them to go to school uh, which in and of itself in the 60s was remarkable because not every woman, you know, could imagine going to college back then. I mean, certainly there are plenty who still have struggle with it today. But but the class divide then was that a woman who went to college, even though she'd gone to college, which was estimable, got out and wanted to get married. Susan Stamberg says that when she graduated from Barnard, where she went on scholarship, that she was one of five women in her class who didn't have an engagement ring on her finger. That was the goal when you went to school, not equipping yourself to go out and have a great career, but equipping yourself to be very intelligent, get the best guy and be the best wife and mother for your family. And so all of these women uh, they didn't issue that, you know, it's not like they said they weren't, they weren't the classic feminists of that generation, uh, who were, and, and many of them were married by the way too, but they, they weren't, uh, activists. They were working around their lives, you know, doing what they needed to do and just literally bu- bumped up that, that discrimination that you just read in that quote, what, which was, women can only go so far in a workplace. We'll let you in as a secretary, as a researcher, as a low level person, because we know you're going to get married or if you are married, that you're going to have a baby and that when you have a baby, of course, you're going to leave probably because we'll make you or probably because you'll want to. So, So the limit on women's ambition, well, the ambition wasn't limited, but the possibility was limited. And all four of them bumped up against that in their own ways as they embarked on their careers as young women. Yeah, so women in journalism in this time period were just put in an impossible position. Um, In the book, you quote Koki as saying, quote, if you interrupt too much and are too aggressive and ready to get in there, you come across as a bitchy, shrill witch. And if you don't talk enough and are polite and wait, then you come across as a wallflower with nothing to say. And while I think this still exists to a degree, it was so ramped up and heightened when they were starting their careers. So how did these women start making headway against a damned if you do, damned if you don't landscape? What what well, what were the moments where they started to break through? I'll I'll answer that in a minute, but I have to point out that the quote you just read from Koki was after she got 
to such a level in her career that she was asked to be on David Brinkley on Sundays. So she was already uh, a, a formidable force when she said that. So you can imagine 15 years before that, as she was struggling mm -hmm. to, to break through, each of them uh, just basically were tenacious enough and, and luck and timing landed them at slightly different moments in the 70s at the very beginning of NPR. So what's so interesting there is, of course, none of us can time when we're born or what career world we go into, but these four women happen to be born at a moment in time where after bumping up against this discrimination, uh, they managed to land at this place that was just starting. It was sort of an also ran, it was definitely an also ran. It wasn't a place, it was just like CNN. Nobody wanted to work there in the very beginning because nobody really even knew it existed. And so by accident, they all kind of wound up in this place that was ripe for leadership, for voices, you know, in, in Koki's case, um, she'd done some freelance reporting before she got her job at NPR, uh, but she couldn't do much more than that because no one would give her a job. Uh, and earlier she had been juggling career, uh, family duties with career duties and happily not working full time. But all of a sudden she's at, at NPR with Linda Wertheimer and they're covering Congress. And it's so unusual for women to be running around with microphones in Congress at a time before Congress was as uh, transparent as it is today. You know, we can turn it on and see it right. on C-SPAN. It's 24 hour news, but they were running around the halls of Congress where, where Koki grew up as the daughter of Congress people. Um, and, and they even said at first, you know, the men were surprised to see them. And after a while, they were, the men were just so happy to have coverage that they let their guard down and started talking to them. So it's it's a multi-layered story how each one of them broke through. But it really what what was so amazing for me as a storyteller and and, and convenient too is that the walls started to break down uh, in the 70s because of feminism, but partially they broke down because these four women were doing the jobs that they were doing that were allowing people in the country to hear women for the first time delivering news in a serious way collectively it wasn't just one person it was the four of them and many others involved with with this nascent network and and slowly but surely that helped educate the populace, if you will, that women could talk about these issues, that they did have something to say about these issues, and uh, these issues meaning news broadly, and um, that slowly eradicated this this bias and and discrimination against women. Of course, as you point out, it's not gone, but you could never imagine uh, someone feeling the way saying that today to to a woman in a workplace. Well, speaking of, I can't imagine this happening today. My blood, Lisa, boiled over at about the press club. So uh, the all-male press club, women, and you, you outline this, you, you tell this story in the book beautifully, although it's such an ugly picture. Uh, women were relegated to the balcony where they, because of the, because of the cameras who were also, also on the balcony could not really hear what was going on down below, making it impossible to do their job. And this really 
sent me over the edge. They were not even allowed to ask questions. Right. So they just basically sat up there and got what they could off of other people's questions. They could barely hear. So how, how can these women be expected to do their jobs in an untenable situation like this? It's a miracle that these four women were able to do what they did. Well, yes. Okay. Back to your first point about the girls in the balcony and the discrimination at the National Press Club, which of course was true at so many institutions around the country uh, where women were just not allowed. And it's important to point out for people who may not know that the National Press Club isn't just a, a social club. At that time, especially, it was a preeminent place for newsmakers to come when they came to Washington, DC. And again, this is before the 24 seven landscape, um, you know, where you could just have a press conference in your back bedroom on your iPhone. I mean, th basically, they people came. Law uh, newsmakers came to the press club, and uh, gave press conferences and, and talked to the media there. And so the fact that women weren't allowed to join and fought their way into that balcony just so that they could at least listen in uh, to certain news events and then be escorted out was was important for this small group of women uh, pre the women I write about in this book. Um, because this way they could they could do their jobs. Now, of course, there were so few women who actually had jobs reporting on quote unquote real news because you know up until a certain point, women, if they did have reporting jobs, typically were only allowed to report on society news or what right. was called women's news. And so these women stepped into a Washington DC where this discrimination happened. And I would invite you to read a book, Girls in the Balcony by Nan Robertson of the New York Times, which is all about uh, not just the balcony at the National Press Club, but about how women at the New York Times job candidates were judged on their looks. And this small group of women who were at the New York Times in the 60s and 70s found this out and of course went nuts and, and sued and uh, not, not to get too off, off the rails, but everywhere in, in society, I just focus on journalism here, women were told they weren't good enough, they weren't authoritative enough, they had other things that they should be doing in society. And that's just how it was. And these four women, uh, as I say, there were activists, there were people marching and people working, excuse me, behind the scenes to make sure that legislation changed and, and that all sorts of uh, laws and rules were put into place. And I talk about that a little bit in the book too, but these women exemplified women who were able to break out and and bust down those barriers and that helped all the rest of us who came behind them they weren't the only women working but they were four prominent voices at a time when women were were restricted it was it was incredible to read about even for me and i'm older than you are <laughs> Well, we are able to do the work that we do because in large part to women like, and I want to name them, I find that very important, like Susan Stamberg, like Linda Wertheimer, like Nina Totenberg, like Cokie Roberts. I, I, we say, obviously the book's title is their first name, but I, I need our listeners to know these women's full names because yes. those four women let you and I, as women in journalism, do what we do today. Absolutely. And 
I want to continue to, to set the landscape for our listeners. Listeners, please pick up this book. Again, it's Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki. And, um, but women at this time, they're relegated to nothing but the token female in the newsroom. You said it a minute ago, the researcher was the, the job that, um, that women were given. They're expected to leave their jobs and marry. They're not taken seriously. And in the book, you quote an editor of the time saying, quote, a woman's manner is not suited to news and serious discussion. So as you just said, they're relegated to society topics, whatever that means. So um, even and then even as progress is being made, so these four women are making progress. These women are being labeled as a quote. This is a direct quote, a persistent bitch Mm -hmm. and accused of sleeping their way to the top. That is disgusting. Mm -hmm. So it would have been so easy and I probably would have quit trying to break through barriers. Honestly, I wouldn't have blamed these women if they had just said to hell with it. So what do you think kept them going? What fortitude allowed them to press on? Well, you know, people are resilient and some people are more resilient than others. And, you know, working in this world, Uh, You know, there are people who have grand ambitions and who just fall flat because they can't keep picking themselves up. And you know what? It's really hard to keep picking yourself up. These four, right. And I mean, after a while, you wouldn't blame anybody for just checking out and not not continuing. Even today, it's hard, let alone in the 70s. Absolutely. No, no, exactly. Even today, especially um, there's different sorts of hurdles that we all have to face and 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 different sorts of craziness that we're encountering as as people. People, not just women, but but these four women. Uh, again, it was partially timing, and I don't mean to at all to minimize their their achievements. But let's look let's look at Susan Stamberg, since she really is the founding mother of the founding mothers. Susan Stamberg basically was working as a typist at a print publication, and she wanted more. She had a good brain; she wanted to use it, and she worked her network and had moved to D.C. with her husband as, as a newly married woman. And, uh, you know, just in support of his career, he was a Harvard educated lawyer. And, you know, she's looking around for work and someone says, you know, they need a producer at this little radio station that's just getting started uh, on the educational band of radio. And Susan goes in and she basically says, well, what does a producer do? And they look at her and they say, well, you know, a producer is somebody who doesn't take no for an answer. And she said, well, that's me. And so all of a sudden she's hired at a very low wage because this is the precursor to public radio as we know it today. It's educational radio station. They're starting a, a, a issues show. And Susan was willing and able to work for less money than she had as a secretary um, and was enthralled by radio. She loved radio as a kid, but she never imagined working behind the scenes in radio. And as we all know, one thing often leads to another at that particular workplace. And not long after, she was hosting a show that was sort of the precursor to All Things Considered. Fast forward a little bit and she has a baby. She does want to take time off to be with the baby. And in 1971, as NPR, this little startup 
fringy place in public broadcasting, which was also just starting up generally, uh, is crewing up and someone recommends her and she walks in and she says, I only want to work part time because I've got this baby. And they say, fine, you've got experience in, in this world, we'll bring you in as a production assistant. And fast forward another year after that, and they're having a really hard time finding the voice for this new show, All Things Considered. And it's a very loose place in the sense that there's no real job titles. Really, they're making up and they're inventing a new uh, medium. Basically, radio had been around, but public radio was being invented. Right. And um, basically someone looked at Susan and said, that person is the best person to be hosting this show. She personifies the voice that we want, you know, the tone and the sensibility that we want our listeners in this new network of stations around the country to hear. Well, that's great, but no woman had ever hosted a national newscast before. And there was pushback, even inside the ranks, among people who really admired Susan and her work on air and off. And Susan's one of those people, if she had wanted to run the show, she could easily have done that. She was the kind of person who had that big picture sensibility that's necessary to be a producer. Uh, but she, you know, she loved telling stories. And so somebody put her in the seat as co-host and across the nation. And as I say, inside people, some people were like, what, why is a woman hosting the show? Yeah. And thankfully the producer of the show said, because she's the best person to host the show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she did. And so, so I tell that long story because it is such an important story to say that this woman, it wasn't, you know, she, yes, she was tenacious. Um, and yes, she pushed back and that's how she got this job. But really the answer to your question is she got the job because she was the best person for it. Right. And it just happened to be that she was a woman. Right. And thankfully someone noticed that and they were exactly. right. Exactly. And I, it's important for me to note here that we've lost Cokie Roberts, but the other three women are still alive. So on the off chance that they happen to be listening to the debut episode of I'd Rather Be Reading, thank you, ladies, for making <laughs> this moment possible for me and for Lisa. So such an important point in the book is the bond uh, forged through fire, if you will between these women. You yes. write on page 143, quote, only when Koki commiserated with other women did she realize she wasn't crazy or alone. So speak to the power of female camaraderie and its importance to these women. Well, time and again in history, we know that we need each other and we love to know that other people uh, have gone through what we've gone through. Look at, you know, grief circles, right? You you go and you talk with other people who've had a loss. It doesn't make your loss go away, but it em empowers you somehow. Uh, and, and that's what happened with these women. They had witnessed this old boys club for years uh, from various permutations as, as young women, uh, you know, as girls, as young women, as, as uh, college students, and now as young professionals and or young aspiring professionals 
professionals. So all of a sudden they were in this place together where they could be their own old girls network as they called it. And so they, they enacted it. They uh, not only helped and looked out for each other, but they recognized that, that the other women in DC who were doing the same kinds of things that they were doing, juggling families, juggling life, juggling careers and pushing back against stereotypes, they all needed help too. So they all worked with each other, you know, as we should all be doing all the time, by the way, there should be absolutely nothing remarkable about this at all. It, which is, you know, you see someone, someone asks you to be in their new podcast, you say yes. Someone asks you to make a connection for them, you say yes. It's just a no brainer to me. But it, what was remarkable about this at the time is that they recognized the power they had with each other to advocate at NPR and help create a union. They, they helped, they were mostly, many of them were part of the creation and, and bringing in of a union at NPR to get better wages. And then once that happened, they advocated at the union for better working conditions. And then once women came in and were juggling families and they were younger, they they helped and, and worked with them that way. They single people came in, men and women, and they hooked them up with each other. I mean, they just literally took it upon themselves to treat each other and everyone around them as people who were part of a giant ecosystem that they wanted to bolster. And again, I don't know why that that's that's such a big deal, but I do know it is a big deal. And I know it's not taken for granted. You know, we've all been in workplaces or in social circles where that's not the case. Um, but th these women saw how critically important that was and and made it part of their mission. And, and it's existed. so important. Oh, my gosh. And I just I need women to to know that when another woman is winning does not mean that you are losing exactly when we all when one of us wins we all win and yeah. we should lift one another up and support one another like you taking a chance on this this is my debut episode you didn't have to do this my gosh you're a best-selling author you, you but you did because and i think these four women would say brava lisa for for being on this podcast today and i, I want to say thank you again oh, so it's my pleasure but i want to point out that koki roberts till almost the day she died what you know i was doing a lot of this research online and i koki roberts appeared you know best-selling author making all this money on television i mean she and she was older and sick and she was still agreeing to be on podcasts big and small new and established um giving interviews to people all the way till the end you know i i was i was marveling at that i was i was exhausted <laughs> just well and her. yeah and it, i think it just speaks to in whatever way you can try to do some good for someone exactly and just exactly. say yes if you're able say yes and right. so i i love that so i wish that the happy that was a happy ending and then they all ran off into the sunset and gender equality was uh widespread but let's back up for a second so these women get their fair shot finally right their talent and intellect are finally able to be seen and appreciated barriers are being broken but by this point it's taken some time and in an issue that continues today these women are middle-aged and replaced by younger women and also continuing today pay disparity between men and women was an issue then it still is today these four women obviously pushed the needle forward, but we still have a ways to go. So what do you 
you think these four women's ultimate legacy is? I know that's such a huge question, but. Well, it's legacies big and small. It's their own personal legacies, of course, in the work that they did that lives on. And, you know, you can find Susan's books, Linda's book, Koki's books. Um, Nina's, of course, still extremely active and has probably indelibly changed the way the Supreme Court has been covered or, or just legal matters for that matter. Um, so, so they all have fierce individual legacies, but collectively, as you point out, you know, look, it, this is, discrimination doesn't go away overnight and social mores don't change overnight. When I was a young woman, people would not talk about homosexuality the way we talk about it now. I mean, it was a big, I, I had friends, I mean, I know there are still people who can't come out to their families and that there's discrimination in the workplace. But when I look at my life and I'm 57 at how radically different acceptance of the gay population is than, than it was when I started working, it's remarkable and wonderful. It's exciting. So look at women in the same way or look at people of color in the same way. No, it is absolutely not perfect. And we're never going to erase hate 100%. I wish we could. I, I believe in the human spirit, but I, I sadly don't believe 100% in the human spirit. I don't think, you know, we'll always, we'll get rid of, of hatred. However, we've come so far. And that's a huge legacy that we can thank these women for because their voices gave women and men the capacity to see women as authoritative in a way that that man who you read at the beginning didn't or couldn't. I don't even know if he was, he might've been making that up. I, I don't know. I don't know what he thought, but he he said it back in 1964 and now in, in 2021, it's, it's much, much different. And mm -hmm. you would never allow him to say that. Uh, if, if he if he gave that quote to you, you'd push back. And that wasn't of the case. Of course I would. <laughs> I, would I know you would. <laughs> he would wish he'd never met me. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm, I'm afraid just imagining that conflagration. Yeah, so. no, that wouldn't fly. That wouldn't fly. So <laughs> something I really appreciate these about these four women is that they were fiercely committed to helping and supporting the careers of younger women who followed behind them. So what do you think? And I mean, three of them are still alive. So uh, they, I, they very much are attuned and aware to the landscape for women in journalism today. But what, what do you think they would say um, about the landscape today? Well, they I've heard them say, in fact, I have to point out that we all appeared together at the National Press Club virtually a few weeks ago with its new president, who happens to be a black woman. Just doesn't show, that make you so happy how <laughs> far we've come? That gives yes, you so. There's a great example of that. But there we were all talking and and they all marvel at the 24-7 ecosystem of today, um, you know, Radio isn't just radio, it's now podcasts. Um, deadlines never cease. And so they marvel at younger women today who are juggling families and and you know young children and the the endless parade of deadlines. I think they also seem to sound a little bit relieved that they don't have to be that young woman today because it is exhausting just to think about how people juggle everything that they juggle in daily deadlines and with life, life issues as well. Um, I think that they also 
have a sense of disbelief that uh, the place they went to work 50 years ago is not only still around, but is as a as huge a force as it as it has become. None of them imagined that when they walked in the door. Nina walked in the door a few years after Susan and Linda did. They came at the very beginning, um, but but nobody imagined that this would be the case. I mean, who who can imagine fifty years from now? Um, mm -hmm. So I think that there it's a it's a mix of wonder and pride and uh, excitement. And I also think, you know, think about the fact that Susan Stamberg had a son who has two daughters. So she's got granddaughters. Koki had a whole raft, you know, she had a daughter and has a whole <laughs> raft of nieces and nephews and et cetera, et cetera. Nina uh, had, had children through her two marriages. Her first husband died and her second husband, um, you know, so she's, they all have kids in their lives, be it biological or otherwise. And so of course, they wanted the best for the next generations. Uh, you know, I don't have kids and I want the best, best for the next generations. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's so important that, that these women had that vision for the future and also were able to look back. You know, Susan Stamberg's mother was a bookkeeper who helped support the family and was thrilled that her only child, her daughter, was able to go to college, which she didn't do. Um, you know, Koki Roberts' mother, on the other hand, was from a well-to-do family, went to college and became a congresswoman herself. And so they saw their mother's struggles and triumphs, and that informed what they did and how they lived their life. And I don't know about you, I imagine not even knowing you, that you, like me, want to honor the people in your past as much as you want to support and hope for the best for the people in the future. And that's what these, these women definitely. The, the other thing they have to say, Rachel, and I have to say this is they, they, they are very, when women express outrage and disgust as you have and should at the things that they encountered, they say at that moment in time, they had to modulate their reactions mm -hmm. in the service of getting what they wanted. Yeah. And I don't know that they could imagine what they would do today if they were in the same situation. But as Nina has said many times, choose your battles. Mm. She chose her battles and mm. you know, clearly she won. It worked in her favor. Not everybody gets to be her, obviously, um, but, but she's, they're, they're all incredible examples of, of triumph and, and over adversity and success. And so are you, by the way, just want to throw that in there. You are one of my favorite writers. So um, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from this book and the stories okay. of Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki? You, you just have encapsulated it. I want younger women who can't imagine this world that I'm depicting to say, oh my God, I can't believe it. And oh, thank goodness that this happened. And wow, what a great story about the creation of, you know, a, an iconic force. The women and then the place are iconic. And wow, I had no idea that it almost didn't make it. So I want people to think it's a great story because it is a great story, but I also want people to come away. And I've heard from women too, older women who are the contemporaries of Susan Stamberg, Linda Wertheimer, Nina Totenberg and Koki Roberts, who've said to me, I struggled in the seventies too. And I loved hearing this story because it affirmed what hell I went through and it reminds me how far we've come. So those are the various reactions I'd like 
from folks. And you've just given it to me so I can stop right here. I'm done. That's so, so good. And I'm on a double deadline day today and having this conversation makes me inspired to just go do the work because you know what I can, I'm able to, and, and that is such a gift that this book has given me. So again, the book is Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki. It is out right now. Lisa, thank you so much for being here today on my very best day. I hope I'm half as talented a writer as you are. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're a dear, and I wish you the very, very, very best with everything you do and this particular, in particular. So thank you so much. You made my day. Thank you. Such a good conversation. And as promised, here's how to get in touch. Email me at hello, I'd rather be reading at gmail.com. I know that's a mouthful, but it's hello, I'd rather be reading at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you're reading and why you love it. So we'll see you on Thursday with our first batch of Thursday three. And in the meantime, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show. It helps others find what we're doing and build our I'd rather be reading community. Thank you so much for being here today with me as I truly realize a dream.